0: All right, folks. Welcome to the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I'm here with my colleague and good buddy Mike Sohn. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great. Happy to be here again. We just had two separate interviews. One is about an hour each with Norman Radow, the founder of the Radco Companies based out of Atlanta. He's got an amazing career. He's been doing this for starting out as an attorney. His parents were immigrants. Grew up in Section Eight housing. Um, was in New York. Moved to Atlanta. Uh, got an amazing career and story. I wish we had more time to speak with him because he could you know we could probably do like five hours of this. Um, yeah, so please enjoy part one of the interview with Norman Raddow. All right, Mike, we got a great guest today, Norman Raddow. Norman is the chief executive officer at Radco, based in Atlanta. He's looking great. You can't. This is not a. a uh, it's only an audio podcast, but he does look great. And Mike and I look like schlubs here. I uh, <laughs> appreciate you coming on, Norman.
1: Uh, I'm glad to be here, Chris.
0: Um, how are things going in Atlanta? It's it's, it's unusually hot here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, um, but I'm, I grew up in New Jersey, and so summertime's i've gotten weak is what i'm saying like it's not that hot it's not sticky um but for me it's hot now how's it going down there
1: yeah it's, it's um the weather's been great and then last week it a big hot spell is like july or august uh and now it's gotten uh unseasonably cool so it's uh we have a hybrid a hybrid may
0: all right um how can you tell us about radco i mean uh, i'm sure most people have heard, heard of you guys but can you tell us about about the company
1: Sure, Chris. Uh, and uh, hey, Mike, how you doing as well? Doing uh, yeah. well. Radco is in its 28th year, and uh, we started in 1994. I was an attorney, and mm-hmm. um, uh, through one of my legal cases, I um, got involved in um, I had the ability to buy what is now the Four Seasons Hotel office and condo tower in Atlanta. And I was a young man in my 30s, and I had no money. Uh, and but somehow this deal fell in my lap and I found a way to to make it happen. And so I, um, for the first few years, I did one deal at a time and focused on them. Probably should have expanded sooner than I did. Um, and then um, um, I morphed into, we can go into this in more detail later, into the workout business. Um, and uh, became, when Lehman went under, uh, I became the workout um, specialist on most of their residential portfolio in the a mixed use portfolio in the United States. So wow. we went into the workout business, and then we went into the multifamily business um, coming out of the Great Recession, and that was uh, really a, another prescient move. And mm. um, now we're still multifamily, but we also um, have gone back into hotels, um, given our um, um, you know the the um, um, the, the COVID. Um, Um, uh, issues that have, you know, really uh, devalued a lot of these uh, properties. Yeah. And are you
0: you using that workout experience now with some of those hotels?
1: um, You know, uh, in the light version, what I had to deal with in two thousand 9 and 10 um, were extreme events, uh, a market that didn't exist. Um, You know, COVID, you're going to come out of it, right? There's going to be some exit from that. Uh, But um, uh, the issues really with hotels are, deferred capex deferred uh property improvement plans debt that's difficult to get which we solved with our balance sheet um and and you know more ordinary things not the heavy lifting that uh, we really had to do in 2008 and nine so, so- I would call us so i would call us in short an opportunistic development company and uh we've um a lot of a lot of uh, your listeners would know us as a multifamily company, only because that's been a decade plus long opportunity, the longest opportunity I've ever seen in my career. So um, so yes, we are multifamily. Uh, we were the second largest landlord in Atlanta. We were second largest landlord in Tampa for uh, a few years. Um, and uh, we. Um, uh, so people think of us as a multifamily company when in fact, we're an opportunity company, opportunistic company. And that's why we're now also shifted into hotels as well
0: that's awesome um so you're a recovering attorney i don't so know my, my my uncle- i don't know if
1: you ever recover chris I don't <laughs>
0: ever. you're in recovery that's right um, it's
1: like an alcoholic right even if right. you recovered you're still an alcoholic, still so an alcoholic. That, my, uh, my, my, my uncle
0: was a developer but he was started out as an attorney and i his whole i'll paraphrase what he told me but he's like if these guys can do it like if these idiots can do this, like. He's you know, I can do it cuz he's working on the, the real development language. Deals. Yeah, that's kind of was it. Yeah, hey, wait, Like, no, yeah. I don't, I
1: don't want Julio to start uh, bleeping us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Julio loves the power. Julio so is is that sort of like uh so he was like, "Hey, this you know, I don't love being an attorney and um these people I'm helping on these development deals and if these guys don't have anything special going on, um I c- I could do this. I'm smarter than these guys like is that sort of, and it seems more fun. Is that sort of how you got into it?
1: Uh, yes. No, I, I yeah, I, mostly yes. There are no parts. I did love being an attorney. I was really good at it. Um, and, but I did see my clients, uh, and watch what they did. And I said, I, I said, it, anyone could do it better than that. And yeah, you know, when I grew up, uh, it's a little different today, uh, that, you know, there was no masters in real estate development. Right. There's no school you went to to become a developer. You were a former broker. You were a former um, uh, lawyer like me. I'll tell you a really funny story, which is why I decided I was in the condo business for a while uh, in uh, the early 2000s. And in June of 2005, I was I was hit by a car while I was running. And I was, oh I was pretty seriously injured. Yeah, that's, I'm still saying that. But I was in a lot of pain, and, and the ambulance didn't have um, – uh,
0: pain, you know, uh, they had an IV. Oh, my goodness. They didn't, so have, uh,
1: they didn't have pain meds So when I got to the hospital, the doctor met me at the ambulance, and he immediately put morphine in my, um, you know, in my uh, tube. And as they're wheeling me into the hospital, he said, Mr. Radow, you know, you know, tell me, what do you do for a living? You know, he's just from to call me and everything. And I said, "Yeah, Doc, I'm a, um, I'm a condominium developer. And he, he turns to me and he says, really? My brother-in-law and I are going into that. And I go, oh, oh, oh. And he says, Mr. Ray, now where does it hurt, sir? Where does it hurt? So I pointed it <laughs> up to him and I said, doc, you're killing me. <laughs> so I, I, I called the company from the hospital. I, called, I said, sell everything we got. This is the end of the cycle. And I was like, yeah. when your emergency room doctor is going into your business, you yeah, know it's time to leave. So yeah, so brokers, lawyers, and even emergency room doctors uh, become developers. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the projects, actually, uh, in East New York and Brooklyn.
0: Oh, wow. Way out there, huh?
1: But, well, you know, it's uh, it was um, um, originally built as veterans housing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, people who really uh modest incomes, but it uh, um, it was uh, people don't believe it now that I, you know, was from the housing projects. But it really helped define me and my purpose in real estate and, and how I see real estate as the... I call it the third leg of the stool holding up society. I think it's criminal justice system, education system, and property management taken together is what holds up our society. And, um, and uh, so, uh, uh, you know, I saw it in the projects when the housing authority, the police and educational work, my life was great. And when society started, you know, when those three legs started to wobble, um, mm. my life as a kid was not so nice. So uh, I want to make sure in you know, all our developments that uh, all the kids that grow up with us that they know that um, you know that we're going to do everything possible to keep that stool steady, and yep. uh, that they can have a um, a nice, fun childhood.
0: One of our clients is uh, it's called the and Companies, but Jeff Levine is uh, the owner of that, and he grew up in a the- in projects too. And so he does, he, he made it a point. He's now in the process of like, he bought that project. He, he lived in. So, which is kind of cool.
1: Really, That is great. I'd love to meet him.
0: Yeah. He's, he's in, in Douglaston in Queens. I'm reading a book called Deacon King Kong. I'm not sure if you read that book by James McBride. I think it takes place out there. It's like in the seventies, I think. It's pretty interesting. Um, so did your parents like have any sort of, uh, I mean you, to be a developer takes a lot of chutzpah, uh, it's very risky. It's a risky, I mean, it's just risky by nature, right? Um, it's a lot of, it's like feast or famine, at least from my experience. Um, did your parents like instill that in you? Like, where did that come from?
1: No, my dad was an engineer. My mother was a legal secretary. Um, and, uh, we, <clears throat> but you know, I guess it's, uh, I love the rector sets, you know, and I don't know if you have those today, but we had director sets. Mike and, still like, plays with them, you know, and, uh, it's, um, something, um, about uh, that tactile um, 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 feeling of owning something. I just always gravitated to it. And w- w- but what really got me the bug was I moved into Greenwich Village in nice. 1978. And, um, and I moved in to go to law school. I went to New York Law School. Oh, wow. And New York was coming out of the New York was burning. You know, I don't know if that, that book for Pete Hamill, New York was burning. Um, where You know, we had the blackout and the riots and part of the city was burning down. and So real estate was really cheap. So I, I was in a two-bedroom uh, apartment in Children's for $650 a month, I think. six hundred. Yeah. So who could – can, you can't get a closet for that today. No. And uh, so I <laughs> we walked around New York and um, I saw a sign for a building for sale. So I um, – you know, I was in my second year of law school and I was – student loans. My parents didn't have a lot of money. They helped me out. You know, I was working, I was doing everything I could barely make ends meet. Um, and I mean, really barely making ends meet. And so I said, let me find out about this building. So I, it was eight units and a storefront and a couple of lofts. And, uh, it was $60,000. Now I want you to <laughs> think about a, a building in Manhattan for $60,000. Right. So, um, I called the owner and he said, look, I'll, I'll take 10,000 down and I'll, I'll give you what's called the purchase money note. Meaning he'll take back paper. He'll be the
0: more, he'll be the bank. He was the more. Yeah. that's yeah. A great. So, yeah.
1: so I went to my dad and my dad and mom scraped up $10,000. It was a lot of money for them. So I bought the building and then I went out and cleaned it out myself. And it was garbage, you know, rats and you know, just all the normal stuff in New York city. And you know, I fixed it up and they painted and they, they you know, and, uh, and a few months later, someone came along and offered me one hundred and twenty five thousand for it. And uh, so, realizing we only had ten thousand in, I made like sixty five thousand yeah. dollars, you know, in less than a year. And um, able was able to pay my parents back that amount of money. Back in the seventies, uh, allowed me to pay for the rest of my law school. That's awesome. the work, I was able to pay for my law school and to live um, for the next two, year and a half of law school. And, uh, that's when I got the bug. Uh, I made the mistake not buying the next building and the next building. Yeah. I focused on law school or holding it. <laughs> and then I went, you know, wanted to work in law for a little while. So I missed an opportunity. Uh, but, um, I got the bug, uh, because I, I did this deal. My, it was my first deal I was 22. In fact, the New York law journal, which is a very prestigious, um, uh, periodical, and it's the Bible in New York, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, Law News, uh, wrote a front page article about me, um, about that experience about 10 years ago or so. Oh, really? So, um, yeah. So it was, um, really was a uh, defining experience for me and that's, it took, it took, uh, um, a, a decade longer or so, uh, to go into the business, but that was the, the, the
0: catalyst. Your real estate is an amazing investment class because you can yeah like you said you can only the leverage you can get is amazing uh, not
1: today by the way no. uh in the last 60 days the debt markets have gone crazy yeah, but yes, yeah. the leverage Generally. especially multifamily because you have the agencies um so you always have those uh to provide liquidity um yeah leverage is, is um is uh um an opportunity and it's also a curse when things are um like today getting a little wobbly. So, um, you know, you opened that with asking me the question about risk and I was at an, uh, apartment association meeting where I was on the panel with a, a couple of really, um, um, wonderful co- competitive colleagues of mine. And one of the questions from the audience, 600 people were there and, uh, they were saying, how can we become you? That was the question. Right. How can we become you? And, um, and I said, uh, I think, uh, really, I, I said what your question was, which is, um, are you willing to put your home and family at risk? Are you willing to risk, uh, you know, going into bankruptcy? Mm-hmm. Um, you realize when you have employees that you have to pay their salaries, whether you make money or not? Um, and they have to lose sleep to figure out how to do that. and And then you have to be able to sign a warrant to put a family out on the street. These are all really, really difficult decisions and uh, risks. And um, and um, um, if you're willing to take all those, then I can talk to you the second step: how to be me. But really, <laughs> but really <laughs> risk. I'm um, the sleepless nights I had the first couple of years I I did this, um, and the the months leading up to my first acquisition and leave yeah. my, you know, I left my job and was saying, how can I lose, leave my job what if I can't make money how am I going to take care of my family I didn't have you know uh, two nickels you know everything was you know two cars mortgage you know house mortgage you know kids in school I mean what am I going to do and I really lost tons and tons of sleep leading up to the decision to go on my own and then even the first couple of years in business always losing sleep every night about the risks that I was taking what's going to happen stressful. tomorrow so uh, glad I did do that, and I think um, I probably shouldn't have worried as much as I did. I should have believed in myself more, but still, um, at the end of the day, the buck stops with you. People's lives are are um, affected by your decisions. Um, your family's life can be affected by risks you take. And I, I know some really successful developers, people I admire, uh, who got hit in two thousand eight nine and lost everything, uh-huh. everything. Uh, and even today, haven't fully recovered from that. So, so um, uh, fortunately, I morphed and was ready because I got hit by a car, and I knew to sell because the doctor was going to our business. But if I, you know, but if I stayed in the business um, and hadn't delevered in 2007, six and seven, uh, I would have been caught up in that too. So um, it it is a risky business, and everybody says, "Oh, look at so and so! Look how much money he has!" And a lot of risk went um, into that success. So about balancing those risks, right? That's that's right. You have to balance them, and but you have to take them. Yep. That's the thing. And most people can't take it, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's you know my wife, for example, um, was an incredible technology salesperson. Yeah. Um, they, uh, she was called. I mean, this is it will date her. She was called Video mm-hmm. Girl. She was the first, one of the few women in uh, the internet business and in the uh, uh, 80s, and mm-hmm. then um, uh, went into video on demand. And, you know, she she was a great salesperson uh, and uh, made a lot of money for a salesperson. And um, when I was um, I, I was doing a deal one day, we were dating, and she overheard me talking to uh, my attorney, and get this, this will make you laugh, but 2011, mm-hmm. I was buying a deal with $70,000 of hard, earnest money, at-risk, earnest money. So if it doesn't close, I was going to lose $70,000. And she turned to me and said, you can't take that risk. Yeah. You can't take that risk. You know, $70,000 is a lot of money. And she's just going nuts on me not to do the deal. And, uh, of course, I made millions on that deal. <laughs> I made millions on that deal. But, um, you know, $70,000 coming out of the Great Recession was a lot of money. And she couldn't have taken it. She told me. I, 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 that's why she yeah. never went to try to work for a startup she never went and took risk on her own because she didn't, she wanted that. Um, she wanted two things, a steady income with, with the opportunity for um, you know, to make more, but cap, really. You know, as a salesperson, you're cap, but to have an infrastructure behind you to take care of everything else for you. So she just wanted to sell and that was it. And so she didn't want to take that risk.
0: Yeah, some and, people are just, I don't know what it is, but some people just have a high risk tolerance, others well, don't.
1: Yeah. And it's not a lot, but, um, but, um, you know, so I, I, laud people who take the risk. I laud people who don't, uh, as long as they don't have jealousy or they don't, they recognize what someone did to, um, uh, the reward they got for taking that risk, but they don't see other people that lost it all taking that risk. And there are
0: plenty of those too. Yeah. You so- don't hear about those as much. Where did, so how, so you were working in, were you working in New York as an attorney?
1: Yeah, I worked in New York till 87. I graduated in 81. Uh worked till 87, moved to Atlanta. I uh, got a job as a general counsel at a real estate company in 1997. Okay. Um, Were a, you doing
0: real estate law too? In New yeah,
1: York? It, was, yeah it, was a, it was a real estate company. Right. It was a real estate law for sure. I did real estate litigation, uh, working for the Corporation Council and the Department of Housing, Preservation and Development in New York.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, yeah.
1: And morphed into transactions. I always felt that. It's better to be a litigator first because when you go into the transactional side, you understand how um, litigators can tear apart the meaning of transactional documents. So, so I, um, I I became a better transactional guy, deal guy, having started as a litigator.
0: And so you had so that that real estate deal kind of you're circling around the industry, right? You're kind of you're That's doing right. legal work for, it and then you go in house, and then how did it take off? You mentioned this deal with the uh, the first one with the hotel, like how did that? happen.
1: Um, So I was the attorney uh, uh, for uh, the the general counsel for a company that had the net lease of the hotel portion of this 53-story building. And when I negotiated it, um, um, it was uh, the the developer was a Swedish developer who had no real development experience. And he had been a pig farmer in Sweden. and, And Stockholm expanded and they built the airport they took part of his property to build the airport, so he got money from that, and then people come to him and said, hey, um, we want to buy another piece of your pig farm to um, you know, build a convention center, to build a hotel, and to build this, whatever, whatever the infrastructure is needed around an airport. So eventually he said, hey, um, why don't I do it myself? Why do I need these guys to make money off me? So he started doing some of that in Sweden. And um, so he came to, to Atlanta, of all well, places, and bought up huge pieces of land in the Midtown area. Midtown was desolate at the time, uh, and um, he wanted to build a Rockefeller Center. And mm-hmm. uh, it was a massive project that he had envisioned. So the first deep part of that was building this tower to show everyone he could do it. And so he needed a hotel tenant, and so he came to our client, which is my, my company, which is a Spanish company. A Spanish hotel company it was one of the companies they owned and uh, so i negotiated that but i i knew when i did the math that the deal didn't work um i knew that the developer was um you know probably would fail and i i um it's worth the whole podcast but um the swedish developer hired not a real estate attorney he hired an attorney who spoke swedish wow. so um i out I actually out negotiated the, uh, lawyer. And, um, when, when the developer teetered, um, uh, I was able to, um, put a list pendants basically on the building, stop the land, uh, the, uh, Swedish lender from foreclosing and, um, and then put them in a deadlock with us. So they had to negotiate to sell us the property. My client, uh, my company couldn't, uh, afford at the time to buy it. And, um, Uh, The Swedes came, uh, the Swedish uh, bank came to me and said, we'll sell it to you. And so I went to my boss and said, if I could buy it, would you mind? And they laughed at me like, (laughs) "You buy it. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So then I bought it. I put it all together. And then they came running to me and said, how dare you, your employee. I asked your permission. They said, well, we didn't think you'd really do it. So uh, (laughs) it forced me to leave. Um, And, um, and um, which is the best decision that really could have happened to me?
0: But it's um, awesome.
1: Yeah, so I did, I did stumble upon uh, Atlanta. So I know I want to finish the story about the four go seasons for, for one second and go to that because that's a great question. <laughs> so here's the interesting thing: I lo- I had no money. So Lehman Brothers, at two weeks before the closing, the money I had secured fell out. And so I had no money. I was short a big hole, like I don't remember twenty million bucks, which was a lot of money in 1994. Lehman Brothers, uh, Mark Walsh and Yan Cho flew down to see me. We were in the bar, of the Four Seasons, and drinking. And I needed to have a drink because on a on a cloth napkin, they mapped out the terms um, to fill the twenty million dollar um, uh, uh, hole. And mm-hmm. it was not, uh, I remember it was. Uh, Nine points, nine points. Okay, just think about that. Um, 20% interest rate and 20% of the deal. So I needed a drink. Uh, guys on the yes. podcast can't see me, but my head was shaking. <laughs> we did it on the cloth napkin, and we went from the cloth napkin to the closing.
0: Mm.
1: We never had any interest, you know. I had the good to- old days, hey. right. Yeah. It was a good old day. It was on the handshake. It was a cloth napkin. I wish I could find that napkin. So we go to closing, you know, we go to closing and a month later I get the first interest statement and, and on the bill from Lehman brothers, it said Lehman brothers holding Inc LBHI loan number zero 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 one. So I was the first real estate loan that Lehman had given, um, and, um, and so, uh, um, uh, I just thought that was pretty cool. And so yeah, I did a lot cool. of business with Lehman and that's why later when it went under, they came to me to help fix a lot of their problems. But, uh, imagine being the first loan. And I guess the whole recession, great recession is my fault because <laughs> it was such a successful deal that Lehman doubled down and doubled down. I mean, and doubled I've, down I've, yeah, others. we're blaming you. And then that's next the title thing, of this you know, podcast. Yeah, yeah. They went under. So I guess it's all my fault. So uh, I guess. I guess
0: the one we're heading into now is also your fault, Norman. <laughs> Don't say that. by
1: <laughs> your I delevered. I delevered to get ready for this. Um, so, uh, your question, <laughs> Mike, your question was, "How did I get to Atlanta? Why did I choose oh, a job?" Right. So I lived in Greenwich Village. I had the cutest apartment. It's on West Fourth and between Bank and West Twelfth Street. It's a great apartment. I was married, but we just had a baby. But it's a third floor walk up, and I had a fireplace, a courtyard view. I mean, it was really lovely. And um, but my wife started complaining. In the old days, they don't have these lightweight, um, multi-use carriages now that are you know car seat yeah. and a and a bicycle and a and a, um, uh, um, a stroller all in one. So they were very heavy. They are made of steel, and so she couldn't carry the baby and um, the stroller down the three flights of two flights of stairs. So she'd bring the baby down, drop the baby at the Chinese laundry. And then go yeah. back up and get it. She said we had to move. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So you know, we started looking for places in Manhattan, and prices started to rise. And and um, and um, yeah, I bought at three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a two bedroom. I said, who would ever pay that in Manhattan? <laughs> so we started looking in New Jersey, which I said I would never do. And then one day shopping <laughs> in New Jersey, I came, I came back to the apartment. First thing when I opened the door is my New Yorker poster of the world. Like every, every Greenwich villager had the New Yorker poster yeah. of the world yeah. framed on their walls. And what is the New Yorker poster of the world? What is the map of the world? According to the New York, the New Yorker, there's Manhattan
0: in the middle There's right? the Hudson
1: River. And yeah. then there's Japan.
0: Yeah. There's
1: <laughs> Everything is about Manhattan. So I, I, right there, I said, I'm not going to New Jersey. If I'm going to New Jersey, I can move anywhere because it would be the same place on the New Yorker map. <laughs> so I, I answered ads in the wall street journal classifieds back when they used to have them. And, uh, I sent out my resume all across the country. And I got like two, two or three job offers and, um, went down to Atlanta. And, and, uh, so it was a growing city. I saw, I saw Hartsfield and I, uh, airport, which I recognized would make Atlanta great because it would be the epicenter of, um, uh, so much of the country. And, uh, and it was a really great decision because you can run a national platform from here uh, in, the, in very efficiently and inexpensively. So that was, a, it was really fortuitous of, uh, me to, to be here. And, um, and, uh, that's why I'm in Atlanta.
0: So how did you, so you were doing, you, you got the hotel deal. Like what was the transition there where you're like, all right, I'm done working this W2 job. Right. I'm going to start doing my own thing. Like what, when did well, that happen?
1: Well, uh, pretty quickly because my company couldn't take me being an owner and, uh, working for them. And so we had a very, uh, um, um, uh, thoughtful and, uh, um, friendly transition out. And, um, I, I lost sleep again. Oh, I'm lose my salary. Oh my God. You know? And, uh, but, uh, uh, I was able to really handle so many problems. Talk about a workout. The building was designed wrong. It was legally set up wrong, um, because there are three Vertical parcels stacked on top of each other that didn't align. The easements that were written didn't line up with what they built. I mean, so I had to fix all that. There were uh, questions about delivery of alcohol. This is the first building in Atlanta where it was mixed use vertically. So the old liquor law, laws here was you can't, um, uh, you can't, uh, uh, not, unlike New York, you can't deliver liquor. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have to be on premises. Well, because it was a separate legal parcel, tax parcel, even though it's the same elevator, it was illegal for room service, like to go up, you know, yeah. uh, and service the condos or the office or what have you. So I, I went and fixed. That. I actually changed the law. I did that. You know, so so many things like that that I had to work on one after the other, create a condo market that didn't exist in the uh, early nineties in Atlanta, uh, especially in Midtown, and you know, just I solved so many problems. It was so much fun. Um, I, I, I lost out on not buying a lot more in that cycle. That cycle is a really exciting money-making cycle. But I spent my time learning on this building. And it made me, made me better later when I went out and, and did more deals. So I, I did one deal at a time. I did everything for um, you know four or five years. And then Lehman Brothers came to me with a deal that was failing in Atlanta, that they were the um, mezzanine dead on. Mm-hmm. They asked me to come up with a business plan, tell them what was wrong. I did. Um, and they said, great, you're now in charge. So I handled huh. taking over that property, became the successor developer. Then they said, hey, I got one in Boston, also a big problem, a high rise. And they took me up there. And then they took me to um, uh, Chicago, uh, then to L.A. I opened an office in L.A. So uh, I was even before Lehman went under, I was uh, taking over all these massive projects mostly with a condo or for sale housing component, uh, but included mixed use uh, all over the country. And um, so they really took me from, you know, one man shop with like one or two employees to, you know, 50, 60 person company. Um, and, um, and that allowed me then to gave me the gravitas and the reputation to take advantage of um, and survive the Great Recession.
0: So, yeah, I mean, so you became Lehman's guy. Um, What was you initially doing condos mainly, right? And then this whole Lehman relationship developed. And then the workout. So, like, I remember when the Great Recession happened and and workout, like, was a new term for me. And, like, all of a sudden these workout groups sprung up everywhere. Can you explain to maybe the younger listeners who don't really know what a workout is, like, how that works? I'm Googling
1: Googling it as we speak. Yeah, there's a New York (laughs) Times article. Uh, They did a 3,000-word article front page of the – business section um, in November of 2009. Um, And I refer your audience to that to look that up and 3,000 words. So it's a lot of fun and you'll see what really goes into it. And it's extraordinary because um, um, you're taking over a building that may be in mid construction, may not be in mid construction. Before you even take it over, the capital stacks were so complicated leading up to the great recession that unwinding them was, uh, like doing Rubik's cube. Mm. And, uh, cause you could have had six, seven, even 30 or 40 participants in, um, in the capital stack, some with intercreditor agreements, some without intercreditor agreements, like where was the value of the property? Who's going to still be in there? Who's going to be fighting for what? And that was sometimes the entire battle was just negotiating, litigating, um, um, uh, uh, with all these different participants in the capital stack. Because they used to tranche these things. Uh, the borrower didn't see it. They said, I got a loan from ABC Bank. But ABC Bank would then carve it up into A notes, B pieces, C pieces, D pieces. And then, um, then they would slice it vertically, each tranche. And other, you know, different groups would take parts. Because they, they were becoming $500 million, $1 billion deals. And so, not every you know these banks can only take. I'll take fifty million of this, thirty million of that. You know, it looked like a uh, a football pool actually. And <laughs> so that was usually the hardest part of um, of uh, you know just getting a hold of the real estate, right? Knowing what is is, and then when you're taking over, you're in a uh, uh, a market that's a falling knife. No one had solutions. There was no liquidity. People were scared, um, and. Uh, most of the developments I took over were partially um, sold or partially rented, um, partially operating, and people think they lost their money and, and what they bought, and there was a lot of fear, and mm. um, so you have to deal with that, and then you have to start solving the problems, right? right. And what I found was I put, um, I put uh, this will crack your audience up, but you know, be- I was not a big computer guy. I took Tag, you know, big these big easels. I put them up in the conference room, and I told my staff, "I, I let's look at all our pro- projects. Let's find, because co- I wanted to teach, because I had to have teams, and they had to know what to look for. I said, let's write down all the problems. Let's look for the common denominators among all these failed projects. And mm. so we wrote down, you know, uh, the developer stole. We had a lot of that. Um, oh, really? The, the, uh, you know, the undercapitalized. The, the, the developer built... Uh, for a certain market that wasn't there, and um, you know, they're just, uh, they just they overbuilt it, they underbuilt it, whatever. You know, all these different issues, and we, um, you know, we, we wrote them all down on 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 uh, Oaktag, and but there was one, only one, common denominator among all of our workouts all across the country. What and was that it? Was that the, when faced with different conditions, the developers would not change their business plan. And this became patently obvious to me in that aha moment, when I was having lunch with a developer we were foreclosing on. And, um, and the, it was a $500 million deal in LA, uh, 1,200 plus um, uh, apartments being converted to condos. He would emptied the whole thing out, thought he would sell it out in 30 days um, and only sold a small part of it, but all in every building. So, so I couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together. And so <laughs> in LA, you can't foreclose. You know, it's a two-year process. There's litigation. It's you know, we wanted to get control of it right away. So we waived his personal guarantees and we gave him some parting gifts to sign, um, you know, sign on the dotted line and deed the property to us. And so um, uh, in exchange, I pretended I said, "Look, I want you to also be a consultant. You know, you gotta also you know talk to me things I may not know and where are these things." You know, filed. What's going on here? What's the history of that? So, I had this lunch, and I said to him, um, I'm not going to say his name, Brian, um, and uh, uh, I said, you know, tell me. (laughs) I I said, I I, I need your help. He says, What do you need? I said, Look, I've I've never done business in L.A. I don't know the building department. I don't know the zoning ordinances. I don't know the brokers. I don't understand the market. Um, You've been here your whole life. You've been doing this deal for three years. You know every nook and cranny of it. Tell me, given what's happened, what would you do? Di- what would you recommend to me to do differently today?
0: Yeah, you know, little softball. Yeah, great question.
1: He gets red faced. He starts pounding the table. The water is splattering. He pounds the table and he said, "I wouldn't change a thing." As he pointed to me, because I did everything right. Right. And I go like, "If you did everything right, why am I here?
0: <laughs> yeah. Why am I <laughs>
1: foreclosing on you?" You know, and and so what he, he wouldn't recognize that market either, he was wrong in how he marketed it and, and um, to begin with, or market changed, then he didn't change with it. And that's what you have to do. And every single project had that same- um, uh, com- Ego. Uh, ego, right. It's ego, um, it's laziness. And um, so I, um, I, um, uh, I started preaching that in the company that you know, we have to make a thousand decisions a day. We may be wrong on a hundred of them, but I'd rather make a wrong decision and fix it than make no decision. And so that became our, our philosophy and I drilled that in. So even when you asked the question earlier, um, is your workout experience help you in your, in your business now as development?" developer? And the answer is yes, but in some ways that you don't even realize because it's become part of our, our DNA to change constantly every time you know we we start a business plan we look at it review it constantly is the market moving past us or is the market retreating and we need to change our focus should we uh make our unit renovations lower should we make them higher uh the, you know and how you know who are we marketing to we think we're marketing to workforce the workforce and we're getting lawyers or maybe we got to shift our marketing every day we're looking at that stuff every day we're trying to you know um move to the market because the market is smarter than we are and that's in our DNA and that's what's made us a really successful company.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and now it seems like the market's telling you dictating to get back into hospitality. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it, um, it does. And, uh, you know, a lot of my, um, peers, um, think I'm crazy, you know, and, and one reason is that my peers in the multifamily business don't understand hotels. I've been in the hotel business. I've owned several. And during the workout period, I had many that were components of a, a mixed-use community. So, so you know, for example, Canyon Ranch in Miami uh, is one example. There was a Canyon Ranch hotel and two condo towers on either side, part of one, you know, uh, 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 and some retail, part of one master plan uh, community. So so I had hotel experience it does scare a lot of multifamily guys because Mm. hotels are true operating companies um, and you have one day leases versus one year leases. So it could be, you know, so a lot of people shied away from it, but um, what we had the experience and again, we're an an opportunity company. We're not a multifamily company per se. And so what do you got? You got, um, uh, you've had two years of unprecedented, you know, uh, an unprecedented pandemic you had a, a, a top-down, shutdown of the economy. Um, you know, hotels got decimated because of that. No fault of their own, generally, but there's nothing they could do. It was, people stayed home. So you had that. Um, lenders allowed um, forbearance, um, so they kicked the can down a couple of years. The franchisors, like the Hyatts and the Marriott's of the world, um, delayed their PIPs, their property improvement plans, That required money to go and upgrade hotels. So they actually started, you know, um, um, they started wearing out faster because no one was putting more capital into them. So that was delayed. And uh, then you had um, PPP money that kept them afloat. Well, PPP is gone. Forbearance is gone. Uh, uh, Hotel companies now want their hotels renovated and brought up to standards. So the pips are coming back. You got to put up money. How are you going to do that? And generally, if you're in the hotel business, especially we're focusing on mid-market hotels, those are generally smaller companies that own 10 or 20 or 30 hotels. That was the whole business. So all their wealth was in those hotels. So they're spending their time saying, which five or 10 can I save? They, they just don't have the capacity to be buying. And so most of the owners in, uh, or the potential buyers in the, mid, uh, the mid-market of hotels are gone they're just not there. So we're actually, you know, bidding, maybe there are three to five bidders. Um, And in the heyday, just three, four months ago, multifamily, you get 50 bidders multifamily. So the the market was much thinner and, um, and then getting debt was very difficult. So you needed to have a really strong balance sheet to get that even today uh, is especially now today uh, for hotels. So even the owners who want to go refinance, to get the capital or refinance their loans that were coming due, you can't get that same loan today. You don't have trailing revenue to justify that loan, so you're you're out of the money. And so, um, so um, that's why we morphed into hotels. We thought it was an opportunity to use our balance sheet, our expertise in running hotels, um, and um, and also recognize that COVID's got to end eventually, like it is now, mm-hmm. and it has to be a return to normalcy. So, so we bought a lot of these hotels on you know cap rates based on 40 50% occupancies when um you know now a normal would be 80 so right. so uh now we're in the, spread, in our yeah. hotels we're in the 60s. so we're cash flowing really really well because we bought them based on a 50% occupancy um, revenue stream so um so that 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 was our um you know it was it was a gutsy call to do but uh i i had breakfast today it was a charity breakfast but it's hosted by Mike Levin. Uh, Mike used to be the um, uh, president of Holiday Inn worldwide. Then he became a lot of things, but he ended up running the Sands Corporation for Sheldon Edelson for about eight years. I mean, he's considered one of the icons in the hotel business, not just that he's so smart, not that he's just so connected, but he's such a great guy. I mean, he's, you know, what you see is what you get. Handshake Mike. I mean, he's a great guy. I love him. And, um, so I was talking to one of his sons who's in the management hotel management business and he comes up to me, uh, his son and says, you know, that norm made out. Right he always knows how to get into something at the right time. <laughs> and because uh, he saw me now buying hotels. So so uh, it was a, a gutsy move, but I think it's going to really great now.